Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. terrible day do you do people generally read government websites in detail before they they go on planes i mean it's mm. the point where they say your passport has to have three months on it pass me by I'm afraid. <laughs> that's so tragic i'm so sorry john what message would you like to pass on to listeners if they're in <laughs> well, britain at the moment if you're trying to leave the country, check your passport. If you haven't got three months to run on your passport, they're not going to let you out. If there was, if there was even yeah. the tiniest smidgen of logic, where were you meant to be joining us from? Just to I was meant to be joining everybody from Turin in in Italy, Torino, which I've never been to, and it's meant to be lovely. I was there as a, as a guest fellow of the Turin Book Fair. As it's my mm. birthday tomorrow, the delicious dinner that they had promised me in a restaurant afterwards will be a, a virtual. But at least I'm at home, and at least I just can order work. a pizza in, John. Be the same. <laughs> yeah. Well, now the good news is, though, and there is some good news. I went on holiday last week, and I was I'm doing a touring holiday in Suffolk, which was wonderful. And um, I spotted something that I thought I don't know anyone on the whole planet who would enjoy this more than my friend and colleague John Mitchinson. And so you've got it there, haven't you? I have. So it's your birthday present. Oh, my God. And also you're cheering you up after your disastrous day present. (laughs) Well, I have to say, I hadn't planned on the the cheering up aspect, obviously, but it's very, very sweet. I'm I'm opening it now. I'm doing it it live. It's actually very well wrapped, Andy, obviously. That's why I said have some scissors to her. Oh, that Tell is everyone what it is. Absolutely marvellous. That is. I know that book. A book that I've actually only... Ha- I've, I've got several of his books. It's by George Ewart Evans, the father of Matthew Evans, uh, former chairman of Faber. And it's called Where Beards Wag All, The Relevance <laughs> of the Oral Tradition. Um, and it's beautiful. And it's published naturally by Faber. And it's got lovely David Gentleman illustrations. This is absolutely my... This yes. is my catnip, Andy. I know. I thought. I thought when I bought one or two, because they're first editions. I'm not even going to say on air where I got them from, because I plan to go back there and plunder further. Um, <laughs> but look, I got a first edition of the Pattern Under the Plow, yeah. lovely Faber first edition with David Gentleman's drawings. And we've actually Beautiful. just we've just launched. I mean, the famous one is Ask the Fellows Who Cut the Hay. Uh, and we've just launched a book on the Unbound site, which is a, somebody's gone back to 
to explain what's happened in the years since that book was written and talking to people in the same village. Oh, there you go. This is a marvellous bit of serendipity, I have to say. Happy birthday. It's fun. Thank you. <laughs> uh, Tessa, where are you calling from? Are, are you in Turin? I'm, uh, I'm in Cardiff, <laughs> which is sort of like the Turin of Wales. <laughs> it is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, and lovely. I think my husband, who loves George Ewart Evans, is cooking me pasta with courgettes and garlic for when we finish tonight. So that's a bit, sounds a bit How vaguely brilliant. Torinese. We're keeping it going, John. We're trying to keep the vibe up for you as much as, much, as much as we can. Shall we do it? Let's go. Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today, you find us on the edge of a wood above a rural railway station on the Kent coast sometime in the mid-1930s. The late spring sunshine is beating down and lying on the grass among thickets of hazel and clumps of primroses are a young man and a woman. He is lying with his eyes shut. She is leaning against him, and in between the sobs, kisses his cheeks, his mouth, his chin. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And today, making her backlisted debut as a guest, though not as an author we have discussed and admired, because uh, we did that. A few weeks ago, <laughs> that's a, what a strange coincidence, is the writer Tessa Hadley. Hello, Hello. Tessa Hadley. Hello, Tessa. Lovely to be here. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah. Um, Tessa has published eight novels, including The Past, Late in the Day, and most recently Free Love, and three collections of short stories. She publishes short stories regularly in The New Yorker and reviews for The Guardian and The London Review of Books. She was awarded a Wyndham Campbell Prize for Fiction and the Hawthorne Prize in 2016 and the Edge Hill Prize in 2018. And she was the chair of judges recently of the Rathbones Folio Prize. Uh, how was that experience this year? My favourite prize, that one. Yeah, we love that prize. It's my favourite prize too. So it was lovely. It was. A, it's quite daunting, as you can imagine, when 80 books arrive in their boxes. But... Um, I had two lovely fellow judges and it was funny as well as everything else with some of the ones which shall be nameless, which were our less favoured books. We had fun with those. And then we had even more and much more rewarding fun, of course, with the ones we loved. And it just seemed an incredibly good year. I don't know whether that's just how it feels when you when you have a good spread of books and read them together but it seemed like it was really was quite hard to choose except that in the end it wasn't hard I mean I accidentally read all of the shortlist well I never did yeah. that I mean I sort of read six of the half a dozen of the books already and then I just thought yeah. well I'm gonna these were all good so <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm going to read the other two I haven't read so thank you very much fabulous the book that we're here to discuss is The Death of the Heart by the Anglo-Irish novelist Elizabeth Bowen. First published in the UK by Victor Galance in 1938 and in the US by Knopf in the following year, it received rapturous reviews on publication and still regularly features in lists of the greatest 20th century novels. Focused on Portia, a recently orphaned 16-year-old who moves in with her half-brother and his wife and proceeds to fall in love with Eddie, who Bowen describes as a bright little cracker that pulled hard enough goes off with a loud bang. That bang echoes disastrously through Portia's life 
and the book delivers one of the most original and painful accounts of adolescence ever written. Anyway, before we brave the cold and knock on the door of Two Windsor Terrace, Andy, what have you been reading this week? Well, I'm finally going to talk about a book that I read a few months ago and really, really liked. It's called Wreck, Jericho's Raft and the Art of Being Lost at Sea. It's by an artist called Tom de Freston and it's published by Granter. And I read this book because I was asked to do an event with Tom at the Faversham Literary Festival a few months ago. And events are funny things. Um, sometimes they are okay and sometimes they are a bit dull. And occasionally they are incredible and something really happens in the room and the 20 or 30 people there who witness it really take it away with them and think about it forever. And this event with Tom was one of those. I really like the book and I'll say why in a moment. But during the event, Tom, who is a visual artist and a writer, we projected the Raft of the Medusa, the painting by Jericho, behind him. It hangs in the Louvre, of course, and will be uh, students of 80s pop culture will know it because it was parodied on the cover of Rum, Sodomy and the Lash by the Pogues, and also <laughs> it's the centrepiece of Julian Barnes's novel, History of the World in Ten and a Half Chapters. But I said to Tom, okay, here's this painting that you're obsessed with. Just talk me through it. And the 10 minutes that followed, improvised by him, were some of the most illuminating and fascinating that I've ever seen happen in a, in a book event or a lecture of any kind. To see that famous painting through the eyes of somebody who knows it so well and has the sensibility of an artist because they are an artist was revelatory to me. And actually... The book delivers that same experience, albeit in a longer <laughs> format over the course of a few days. It's almost like it's several fascinating books bound into one. It's a biography of a world-famous painting. It's an analysis of Jericho's creative process by an artist. It's a memoir of Tom de Freston's personal trauma. And it's a journal of a friendship. But actually what I think it struck me as being about are Tom's own attempt to reconcile himself and the world outside himself, what's happening in the world, in his art. And if you know the painting and you know the history of the painting, you'll understand why the Wrath of the Medusa fits all those categories I've just listed. It was a vast, symbolic attempt to create a current affairs epic. And it was a failure when it was exhibited in Paris. Mm -hmm. And then it was brought over to England, where it was hung in Piccadilly Circus, rather like a freak show, where you would queue up pay you or however many bob it was to look at this extraordinary enormous there no painting is like this in the world also i will say about the book it has two incredible plot twists i can't say what they are but it's not the sort of book you think would have plot twists but there are points where i went no 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 that can't happen <laughs> 
it's just wonderful, wonderful. It sounds brilliant, I have to say. So I'm just going to read a little tiny bit from the beginning of chapter eight, which is called Emergence. And I think this gives you a flavour of it. At the centre of the raft lies a darkness. Hidden in the gloomy shadows of the billowing, swirling sail at the base of the mast are two figures, almost lost from sight. They are not afforded the same light or space as the rest of the cast, being cut off from the bright theatricality and quasi-religious glow of the main cast. These figures live or cling to life in the gloaming, a cave-like pocket of space. It is as if they belong to an altogether different surroundings, separated from the others in a realm beyond hope, one of pure anguished despair. One of the figures is in profile, leant up against the unside scene of the mast at the deepest point of the group. It is hard to decipher his appearance or race. A shadow has climbed up across his back, veiling his head and consuming it. Is this the shadow self? Not just of that now lost individual, but of the whole raft, the whole of France or Europe, the whole of humanity, a figure left to live in the margins, to carry the burden and weight of the repressed troubles of the raft and by extension humankind. The second figure sits on the other side of the mast, emerging into view out of the shadow, on close inspection decipherable, a spectre of utter dejection and angst. Both hands grasp the sides of his head, while his eyes and mouth, barely visible, are contorted into a picture of existential worry. He is reminiscent of one of the souls thrown from the boat to damnation in Michelangelo's last judgment. He stares into nothingness, as if he is contemplating the hellscape the raft has become. These two figures lie almost alone in this dark heart of the painting, fetal in their loss and despair. There is something else hidden in the windswept shadows and folds, and another face emerges. Two pitch-black horizontal marks counter the diagonal and vertical folds. They read like the large eye and nostril of a face, perhaps more of a skull. Once seen, it cannot be unseen. The head of the figure in deepest shadow now morphs into this new face, becomes an open, gaping mouth, a wide scream a head the size of a cluster of bodies, formed by the billowing wind, weather finding human form, cruelly screaming as it pushes the raft towards the waves. And then he goes on. I look again, and I'm less certain the head I saw is even there. From another angle, it seems to disappear. Were these lives coming from or being placed onto the painting? There are ghosts in the shadows, which live in the gaps. We just have to look for them. And that's what the book's about. The book, the book is about constantly investigating the work of others and his own work to find what he has said, what he was trying to say, and what he ought to stay, say instead. It's brilliant, brilliant book. So that's Wreck by Tom de Freston, and that's published by Granter. Uh, 1699. That's definitely on the list. Amazing. I think I, I think lots of people who listen to this podcast would enjoy that book. John Mitchinson, what have you been reading this week? Well, I've been reading a book that was published in 2009 called Nine Lives by Dan Baum. The, the um, subtitle is Mystery, Magic, Death and Life in New Orleans. Fresh back from New Orleans. It's a book I read when I was there. And I have to say it was it was a it was a wonderful companion. It's a kind of studs turkily attempt to to capture some of the the spirit and 
culture of the city. So you're looking at nine different people, a transsexual bar owner, a white cop, a woman whose whose aspiration is to to get out of uh, to get out of the the, the the poor life she's she's born into and, and going to university, um, uh, a repairman on the streetcar, um, and uh, a woman who's married to one of the most influential of the uh, extraordinary troops tribes of Mardi Gras. There are thirty nine tribes of Mardi Gras Indians, which I became mildly obsessed with when I was there, because they sort of, mm. they capture the the mystery and the oddness and the brilliance, I think, of, of why New Orleans is such a robust culture. It's it's poised between two massive disasters, the flood of 1965 and the flood yeah. in, in uh, the Hurricane Katrina in 2005, both of which, you know, would have destroyed, I think, most places. And it's written in 2009, so it's not clear at the end of 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 the book here, whether whether New Orleans is is going to sort of pull itself together and and recover, which I have to say, as of last week, it really does seem to have done. And a lot of the mm. a lot of the reason for that is that the culture that goes beyond just music and food, it's an extraordinary place. And if you're even remotely interested in how to write great oral history in the Studs Terkel kind of style, this is a really exemplary piece. Dan Bam, New Yorker writer, he was sent down to cover. Uh, Katrina uh, after it happened and this is done so well he says rather kind of insouciantly at the beginning he says don't worry if for the first 50 pages or so you can't remember who's who these chapters were written to be enjoyed as individual stories everybody will fall into place eventually in other words be a little bit new Orlean about it don't stress over achieving anything just have a good time it will all work out in the end it really does I'm going to read you a little bit and then um and then we'll crack on. So this is Joyce Montana, who's married to Tutti Montana, who is the big chief of the Yellow Pocker Hunters tribe. And he has a, a really important role in New Orleans history, the, the reason which will become apparent from this reading. She asked him early on how it came to be that black men dressed up as Indians on Mardi Gras Day. She'd heard the standard explanations, of course, that it started as a way to honor the Indians who'd taken and escaped slaves during the bad days that it started as a way for blacks to evade the prohibition against their participating in Mardi Gras. But she wanted to hear it from him. He'd really know. His answer made her love him all the more. I don't know, he said simply. They were doing it before I got here. I only know I love it. On their living room mantel was a forest of framed photos. In the oldest, a 15-year-old Tutti and his uncle Picate wore bearded tunics, baggy suede trousers, and for headdresses, sadly drooping strings of turkey feathers. They looked like Indians in an old black and white western. Tutti hated those suits. They wouldn't do what he wanted them to do, he told Joyce early in their courtship. And what was that? she asked him. He only shook his head for a long time. He didn't answer that question. Then one day he told her, he wanted to stop the fighting. Joyce had snorted and flapped her hand. To her, it seemed the whole point of being an Indian was the fighting. For years, it was the same. After every Mardi Gras and St. Joseph's night, Tutti would walk in with his suit cut up and bruises all over his face. The battlefield always seemed to be the little pontoon bridge over the canal at Forth and Rocheblove, the one they called the Magnolia. Someone would start with the Humba Humba, the Creole bow-down challenge, and it was on. Joyce had often asked why they had to cross that bridge, and Tutti's explanation was always infuriatingly the same. Indians go where they like. It made her crazy. Tutti always blamed the suits. If a man put more of himself into his suit, he said, he wouldn't need to fight. 
Every year he went down to Circle Food Store to see the man who slaughtered the fowl, got his turkey feathers and made another suit. And every year he'd come home from Mardi Gras bloody. Then came the year he didn't go by the Circle for feathers. Instead he'd taken three buses out to a costume and hobby shop in Metairie and come home with a shopping bag full of garish feathers in bright crazy orange God never intended a bird to be. Another bag had beads and sparkly sequins and a mind-boggling array of colours and sizes. Joyce had peeked under the rug when he wasn't looking. All the money was gone. Tootie had set to work right then, with a bruise from the Mardi Gras humbug still fresh on his cheekbone. He'd used half egg cartons, lifting a flap in the apron of the costume, wedging an egg carton under it so that it pushed out a dazzling grid of beads. A three-dimensional suit, he called it. His father had dreamed of such a suit. This suit, he told her, was going to make them stop fighting with the gun and the knife and start fighting with needle and thread. Tootie had always been careful to put his suit in a progress, his suit in progress away when people came to call, but with a three-dimensional orange suit, he became obsessed with secrecy. Nobody could pass through the door until he had every piece of the suit packed away. He'd go over every rug and sofa cushion so that not a trace of bright orange feathers showed anywhere. The suit was so bright, it was painful to look at under the harsh kitchen light bulb. The headdress, Tootie called it a crown, radiated in every direction with a snake rising from its middle. Pirouetting in the kitchen, Tootie had become a man of beaded flame. No vestige of the Hollywood Indian remained. It had worked just as Tootie hoped. He'd come home unbruised that year. His suit had struck the others blind, and they started taking after him. Nobody made those tired old blanket and turkey feather suits anymore. Everybody came out in colours. It took Boku work to make a suit that could stand up to Tootie's, and nobody wanted to work all year and take a chance of having a suit cut up and bloodied by some knucklehead with a broken beer bottle. For his part, Tootie made it his mission to stay ahead of everybody else. The green suit, the white suit, the pink suit. Year after year, each was more beautiful, more elaborate, more extreme than the last. Oh, that's that's terrific. Sentences, everyone. Sentences. It's a really, really good book about culture and how how cities renew themselves. It's a really recommend. What's it called? It's uh, Nine Lives Dan Baum, and it's published by Random House. And it's in print. It is in print. Oh, there we go. We'll be back in just a sec. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. 
Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Would you or I, as readers, be drawn into a novel, implicated with what may be its other issues at all, if our interest was not pegged to the personalities and the outlook and the actions of the people whom we encounter inside the story. They are the attractive element in the book. This being so, which comes first, actually, into the mind of the novelist when he begins to work? the people or characters, or the plot. Don't think it's strange when I say that the plot comes first, that the actual idea or outline of a book is there, the possibilities of a situation, and then the novelist thinks, what would be the kind of person who would perform such an action? What would be the other kind of person who would react in a particular way? I think to myself, I need a proud man, or I need a woman so idiotically romantic in temperament that she will do unwise things, or I need perhaps an almost excessively innocent or ignorant young person. Tessa. <laughs> An almost excessively ignorant or innocent young person. Uh, my little alarm went off then. Yes, she's got to be thinking about Portia then, who's the heroine of Death of the Heart. But what an extraordinary extract that is. I mean, it does remind us of of how long ago the world of these books existed because <laughs> in voiced like that, it feels like a vanished world written sentences are so beautifully fluent that we can read them and hear them in our in our own way in our own lives can't we and actually there's no such barriers to reading her on the page whereas listening to that voice it just takes a little while and then you get used to it i think she's very she's trying really hard isn't she remembering yes. she has that stammer it's taking her an effort to to speak to the microphone and and so on but it's a, she she yeah. didn't record she didn't record her own audio books that's uh, <laughs> that's true <laughs> she did um, they would have been long <laughs> they would they would it's from a talk called truth and fiction which she gave for the bbc hmm. in october 1956 we're going to hear another bit later on but she was hmm. very much um the public intellectual in that hmm. period wasn't she i mean she there yeah. is a lot of her broadcast yeah. work out there They've even published books of transcriptions of things that she did. I think the first thing we should say to listeners, if they don't know Elizabeth Bone, is she was very prominent in her own lifetime, wasn't she? Mm. And I love that in her, that she is, on the one hand, I, I suppose you'd have to say, a highbrow writer, and a, a writer hugely ambitious for her art. It's, it's as complex and sophisticated as can be. 
and yet always an absolute determination to communicate, to touch earth, to communicate widely, um, which which you can hear in the very things she's arguing there, because she isn't making some modernist, alienated account of what fiction is. She's saying first story and how what is story. Well, we mm. immediately need to look for the characters. I mean, it's like mm. being right back down in the creative mud, making the pr- the, the primeval forms of fiction, mm. which she, she she's sort of at once so approachable, and yet so ambitious and so complex. And I I I love that meeting in her always of somebody who wants to talk to everybody about everything, but isn't going to in any way limit what she has to say to make it easy. Mm. John, have you read The Death of the Heart before? No, no, I, and I'd read very little Bowen before, um, although, you know, she was on the I'd, I'd some of the stories, really, but I'd never read a novel. So that's uh, <laughs> such a backlisted moment, but I've I've got another favourite novel now. I, I, I could not believe how compelling this book was and how original and how... Yeah, I mean, yes, you can see that there are maybe connections to to other writers of the period, Rosamund Lehman. You know, later on, there's, there's a, there are, you can feel that, that that there's a connection with Elizabeth Taylor. But this this book is uh, Antonia White. It's so original. You know, it's not a book you can read quickly. You really need to take it steadily. And her her insights, uh, you know, it's. I didn't feel there was a dull or or half baked thought or sentence in the whole book, and the other thing is it's a page. <laughs> how how do you make it a page turner? How do you yeah. make it given given the sort of this in a way the slightness of the Donne of you know teenage girl living in a house with her with her half brother and wife and then go, goes on holiday and comes back. That's pretty much yeah, the sto- that's, that's the right. plot. That's guys. about it. But it's yes. the, those final those final pages, mm. um, which I, I read read again earlier today while sitting in the airport waiting to be escorted out of. I mean, just had me. In, I mean, it's not exactly in tears, just in sheer admiration of the of of, yes. of, the, of the of the 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 brilliance of her control. And finally, hearing that voice, she's saying, "This is somebody. This is somebody who really, really." Going back to sentences, who really, who really delivers yeah. a, a sentence level, but also yeah. has the the skills to make a plot brilliant. So loved it, Tessa. I was really keen when you mentioned um, this as a possible backlisted. I think I basically said yes, let's do it immediately. And there are two reasons for that. First is um, I know, and I'm going to ask you in a minute. You have a lifetime, literally a lifetime's experience of reading Bowen. I kind of want to talk to you about that, but also. Um, so my first experience of reading Elizabeth Bowen was about five years ago, and I mentioned it on this podcast. And long-term <laughs> listeners, I, I fully, even as I was doing it, I was thinking, this is a hostage to fortune. And so it's proved, everyone. So I'd never read any Bowen, and I read um, the novel that follows this one, The Heat of the Day, and I could not get on with it at all. I found the prose so extreme so contorted that I couldn't find my way into it at all. And I, and it's it's talked about in the same breath as The End of the Affair by Graham Greene as a great British wartime novel of, you know, psychology and betrayal. 
but you could not find two books more unlike one another in how they deliver their prose. Mm. And um, but as as time has gone on, I've thought as I try to, hmm, that wasn't Elizabeth Bones' fault. That was my fault. <laughs> and I was hoping <laughs> you would help me out of that. And indeed, you have because this has been revelatory for me. Mm. You hadn't read Bones this either, other work. Have you? I hadn't read this either. I've read several other of her novels over the last few years. And so I feel I've really warmed up to her. Yeah. As I sense you, you wonderful essay in the LRB, I sense you, you tell us about your experience mm. of first discovering her and then the years mm. that you've spent reading her. Mm. Well, well, it was, it really was an accident when I promoted myself to adult books in the local library, as a, as a, I can't really, really remember, but I think about 11 or 12, something like that, I went up the three sacred steps into the adult book section. And as I have written about in that LRB piece, I, I especially, I had no idea. We had, we, we had books at home, but we weren't really a, a, a an initiated bookish family. We were always mm-hmm. reading, but but I didn't have any clues as to where to start. And so I went for long series, uniform series, because I'd loved Anne of Green Gables and Swallows and Amazons. So this seemed to me a good... <laughs> so I ended up reading all kinds of extraordinary things, which I've never read again, like Compton Mackenzie, uh, like Hugh Walpole. Then, and among them, Elizabeth Byrne, because... Yeah. <laughs> I, which I which I now have no memory of, except knowing I read it. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's a backlisted future. It is. Episode, it is, and yeah. maybe it isn't. I don't know. <laughs> it might not be worth going there. Who knows? I I loved the illustrations in the little uniform volumes of the Elizabeth Bowen books that they had in my local library. There was something. They were a doorway into the books for me, as I think with apprentice readers in those days that that was often the case picture I remember reading Dickens and the pictures really helped um and I read those books and I I have such a sensuous vivid memory of reading them in that I hadn't got a clue what was going on I mean I didn't really (laughs) know what Ireland was I, I re- can remember reading the last September, but what? Why? Why was there any hostility between the people who lived in the big house and the people burying guns in the shrubbery? Mm-hmm. I didn't know. I didn't know who the black and tans were. So I was, and you know, I, I didn't know how people like that lived. I, they dressed for dinner. What did that mean? Did they? Did, were they wearing their pajamas all day or whatever? I know from my own experience that you can love writing which you don't properly understand. In fact, I suspect it's always that way around, a little bit like what you've described, Andy. You you read at first hostile and in a fog and yeah. you just see yeah. bright, sparkly yeah. things shining out at you and you either you don't or you do, you rise to them and you expand to them and something signals back to you that this effort you're making is worth it that it's it's worth the candle and I had I suppose difficult writing when you start it it isn't like you're just initiated at once and aha how clever how brilliant I understand that Mm. you you're completely bemused by difficult sentences but it promises you that fiction can be as complicated and thick with meaning as life 
Yeah. Obviously, already, yeah. you know, life is thick and complicated and impenetrable mm. and impossible mm. to understand when you're 13 or 14. So when you come across that prose, even though you're not there yet, it answers to your perceptions. It- that's so interesting. Remi- you, what you've just described reminds me of um, I'm, my experience with the film Phantom Thread, which <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. came out about five mm-hmm. years ago, which I, I know, I mean, if you're regular listeners, you know, I, I, a film I love. I went to see it at the cinema. I hated it. Three mm-hmm. days later, I was still thinking about it. So I went back to see it again. Yeah, and that's I, I feel thing. that might be my relationship to Bowen. That that uh, Tessa, you're so right. The idea that you can't let your own taste, your own instant taste, be a gatekeeper. You have to kind mm. of just let these things soak and mm. then perhaps come back to them. I wrote her off. I thought she was just another Compton Mackenzie and not worth considering. But then I came back to it in my thirties, and ah, it was just it was lovely. It was it was like those foolish things where people meet some old boyfriend on friends reunited and then except this time it really worked it worked i ah oh, i it was a joy i just found she was the, oh, she really nice. is the writer i need i think it seems mad to have a favorite writer and perhaps there isn't such a thing and there are so many there there are of course others but something about what john described about the descriptions the the, the particularity and and the stuff, the furniture, the thickness, the sensuousness, and yet so smart, so sophisticated, so clever. And it's that mm. that mixture of those two parts of life and parts of writing. I loved it when John said, mm. there's not a sentence wrong in here. As a writer yourself, presumably we all as writers have, you know, crushes on the attitudes of other writers particular writers and Bowen I mean for me I don't know what you feel about this yeah she was very friendly with both at different times with both Virginia Woolf and with Elizabeth Taylor the writer Elizabeth Taylor and to me Mm -hmm. she occupies a space between the two while deriving nothing from either Tessa, how does she manage to be <laughs> so uncompromising on one level, yet so readable on another? Once you're acclimatised, I would say, once you're acclimatised, it's a fascinating thing to do. Yes, you need yeah. to learn to read her. But I think that's true of all good writers, isn't it? You need, they teach you how to read them. And you start off fumbling with their forms and their sentences and, mm. and their mm. tone and then the more you read, the more you get it. I mean, it's so true um, with poetry, but it, it's actually just as true with novels. Um, I, I, I mean, I suspect her not having right, done any yeah. kind of formal education really helps yeah. with with something about her her uh, that that warmth and that appetite for life, just going straight in there almost in the earliest stories, maybe not the very first collection, but certainly by the second collection, it's life she wants to write about. She is not deriving mm, anything yeah. about her style yes. or her sentences so from, from, from study. And yet at the same time, she's so bright and so clever and so such a reader that she immediately, in order to express life, reaches for a very sophisticated form 
So that's that's this blend of, of appetite with subtlety and sophistication. Tessa, I'm going to ask you to knock our socks off by reading us something by Elizabeth Bowen. And then I'm going to give you the equivalent of a blurb so that if you haven't read it, we can the novel, you can at least get the, the basics of it for the rest of the conversation. But please, can we hear some of this very particular and peculiar style? And this is from very early on in The Death of the Heart, where Portia, the, the young adolescent, is uncomfortably living with her sister-in-law, Anna, um, her brother, Thomas, or her half-brother, Thomas, who isn't present in this scene. Here she's having tea with Anna and Anna's clever, dry novelist friend, St Quentin. Getting up from the stool carefully, Portia returned her cup and plate to the tray. Then, holding herself so erect that she quivered, taking long, soft steps on the balls of her feet and at the same time with an orphaned unostentation, she started making towards the door. She moved crabwise, as though the others were a royalty, never quite turning her back on them. And they, waiting for her to be quite gone, watched. She wore a dark wool dress in Anna's excellent taste, buttoned from throat to hem and belted with heavy leather. The belt slid down her thin hips and she nervously gripped at it, pulling it up. Short sleeves showed her very thin arms and big, delicate elbow joints. Her body was all concave and jerkily fluid lines. It moved with sensitive looseness, loosely threaded together. Each movement had a touch of exaggeration as though some secret power kept springing out. At the same time, she looked cautious, aware of the world in which she had to live. She was 16, losing her childish majesty. The pointed attention of St Quentin and Anna reached her like a quick, tide or an attack. The ordeal of getting out of the drawing room tightened her mouth up and made her fingers curl. Her wrists were pressed to her thighs. She got to the door, threw it ceremonially open, then turned with one hand on it, proudly ready to show she could speak again. But at once Anna poured out another cup of cold tea. St Quentin flattened a wrinkle out of the rug with his heel. She heard their silence till she had shut the door. <laughs> I, I just I, written I mean, down. I've, these are the phrases I've written down. Yes. In Anna's excellent taste. <laughs> yes. These, these like Anna's little excellent. bombs, these little verbal mm. bombs with mm. so much mm. packed in them, like mm. a quick tide. Yeah. A cup of cold, even a cup of cold tea. Cup Not of a cold, cup of tea, cold. a cup of Not cold tea. Not a cup tea. of tea. Because somehow we, because it's cold, it's... we know that Anna isn't pouring the tea because she wants tea. It's mm. part of a punctuated <laughs> dance between the three Brilliant. of them. And that anguish of being 16 where your fingers curl up at the ends because you don't know how to get your body out of the room. Mm, mm. Elbow joints, not elbows. Yeah. Elbow joints. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she finds a way every time to take the quotidian, the, the kind of lower middle yeah. class life, and to invest it with this kind of, I mean, I can only describe it. It's, it's energy. There's something really alive in her language. And, the, and yet it's a book where you can put a shopping list. She actually has a shopping list in this she book. She actually has a shopping list. <laughs> yeah. This is from an essay that is, was written in the early 1980s by 
Bowen's friend, the Irish writer Sean O'Fallon. And I'd ask you both what you think about this. I, I, I just thought this was so great. Every critic has made fun of Elizabeth Bowen's swanky vocabulary. <laughs> this too is part of her longing to dissipate the actuality of the familiar. Yeah. Yeah. Hence her atmospheric rectory, she, he's quoting, unclouded amicability, phantasmagoric variety, bewildered gardens, <laughs> sublimated inglemook, <laughs> and so on. <laughs> Besides, although she has her countless visual felicities, a girl stands up suddenly, quote, uncoiled like a spring from an armchair, or somebody gives somebody, quote, a doctor's look, or, quotes the sea mackerel blue swelling sleekly between breakwaters. She, as a rule, transfers feelings to our sensibilities rather than images to our eyes. He goes on to say, but is there actually a recognisable Bone style as there is, say, a recognisable Jamesian style? One single style for so complicated, so protean a personality. She has to employ half a dozen styles to suit her varying responses to her various occasions. There are the familiar domestic style that we all use, the hectic style that uses all of us when we get overexcited, the sibylline, which we whisper over a coffee, glancing about less the victim over here, the impressionist style that is only for the most delicate artist to employ, the waggish which only a few command, the moody style with which we address ourselves when alone and overcome, the social which requires a great deal of cold or amused, observed experience, the grand duchess, which can also be disrespectfully called the Fortnum and Mason, or the, or the Bond Street, or the Ritzy style, unless those places have all been taken over by Lord Forty within the last couple of weeks, or of all the styles that one that one which I feel she held most close to her heart and which, again, disrespectfully, I call the Bowen 707 or the takeoff style, Isn't it brilliant? which lifts her into the skies of her poet's imagination. For her essential nature is not, as has been so often asserted, that of the social critic, but of the visionary. Yes, that's beautiful writing and lovely. What a great piece of analysis that is, actually. I mean, that, that, that's brilliant, Andy, because that's that's something that I think I, I really loved about it too, is that she can say, you know, experience isn't interesting till it begins to repeat itself. In fact, till it does that, it is hardly experience. But then she, she puts in a, a, an adolescence diary. Then she gives you a kind of stream of consciousness of the brilliant match it, the domestic. She has none of the trace that I th always feel disfigures Virginia Woolf's work of snobbery. She's really interested in all of the characters, of, of unlocking what makes the characters, even, even if those characters are disturbing, like Eddie. It's really extraordinary writing. Shall I give you a plot summary? Because I yeah, feel on, like good listeners, if listeners don't, don't know this, then we yeah. have to help them out slightly. Okay, so here's a review. There was no blurb on this novel when it was originally published. All it says on the jacket is uh, Elizabeth Bowen's new novel, The Death of the Heart, by Victor Galantz in 1938. But here's the original review that appeared in Country Life magazine in 1938, unsigned. 
Miss Bone's new book, The Death of the Heart, is like one of Henry James's novels, the story of the awkward age, the record of a conflict between the innocent and the sophisticated. Portia, the daughter of a second marriage, comes to live with her half-brother Thomas Quain and his wife Anna in their house in Regent's Park. She is a schoolgirl of 16 and young for her awkward age and is no match for Anna and her set, who are undervitalised rather than corrupt. Miss Bowen, looking down upon her characters, awards them moral black marks from the ineffective Thomas to the young parasite Eddie, the brilliant child of an obscure home who frequented the Regent's Park house. Eddie, who, quote, gets off with people because he cannot get on with them, <laughs> sets out to possess himself of the child's heart. The plot hinges on the fact that Anna, who has housemaid's tricks, has found and read the diary. Portia is sent for a time to Anna's old governess, whose house on the southeast coast is filled with young people whose social deficiencies are amusingly exploited by Miss Bowen. <laughs> on her return, she learns that Anna has read her diary and that Eddie knows that it has been read. She rushes away to a major brut, a gentle and ineffective creature who has intruded on Anna's set, a soldier who has dated like an old car. Quote, he was a 1914 to 1918 model and there was no market for that make and begs him to let her stay with him. The book ends with Major Brutt telephoning that Portia will come back to Thomas if Thomas and Anna do the right thing. It is not certain that they are aware what the right thing is. The old housemaid Matchell, who goes with the furniture, is sent in a taxi to bring her home. There is no climax and no violence in this remarkable and singular book. Summarised, the thread of the story is slender. Only the desperation of a child who has, quote, the loving nature in vacuo. But the book is absorbing, and Miss Bowen writes with sustained brilliance and power. No worry about spoilers in reviewing <laughs> in those days. I should have warned people, shouldn't I? I'm sorry about that. Yeah. But, you know. Can't just share with you the con this is the end of the review that appeared in the Manchester Guardian at the same time. And I'll ask you, Tess, what you think about this. Of the power of this book, in its intense and impartial ability to wring out the last drop of innocent pain, there can be no question. Many who can address themselves to its perusal without spiritual repugnance <laughs> will properly regard it as a work of high literary importance. Others, like the present reviewer, while fully conceding its strength and the unfailing grip in the writing, will think that it contravenes Aristotle's canon which laid it down that there are certain things too painful to be the subject of fiction. <laughs> That's a wonderfully squeamish review, review although, uh, you know, quite right about how, although nothing, nobody actually sleeps with anybody, though Anna's no. obviously slept with her old lover before she was married, but Eddie... Eddie doesn't take advantage of Portia. No, there's very little sex in the book, although it's throbbing with... Sexual yes. Why? Passion. Why is why is that? Why why has she made that decision? I found that totally fascinating. Because of Eddie, it because that is what he's like, and it isn't because he isn't sexual. He obviously he's used his sexuality to some extent in terms of you know in in making his way and being charming, but uh, no, I I think she thinks he wouldn't have that. There's some bit of decency. In him, that no decency is completely the, there's there's an imaginative refusal to do that to her. I think um, this will be this will be controversial for for Andy at least. But the the scenes between um, between Eddie and Portia, 
had at times for me uh, almost a Laurentian quality to them. You know that mm. sort of. Oh, did you? That, oh, that no, kind of that. Oh, that, really? Okay. She's showering the bit you read, John. She's showering those kisses on him, and yeah. he's sort of trying to find a discrim a words for the discrimination that makes him not. She wants him to to make love to her at that point. That's what's going on. You know, I know we may disagree, Andy, about Lawrence in in, in those scenes, but I mean, that when Lawrence is at his best, he was brilliant at doing that between that that thing between the different expectations of men and women in a particular scene. Yes, and I, okay. I feel that yeah, she yeah. does this also, but without hectoring, without without sort of having some grand, yeah. you know, kind of yeah. s- sort of suave loins of darkness type kind of philosophical thing. Yeah. I've still got De Profundis on the brain because I read, because it was the last episode yeah. we did, because yeah. I, I read Eddie and thought, oh, this is really interesting. This is what the Wildean wit and epigram had been reduced to yeah. by the time Bohm was writing that character, that he seems like a kind of, he seems informed as a personality by some half-baked idea of what it means to be a daring young man. But without the... um Courage isn't right. He's almost trying to rid himself of scruples, but can't. You know, that's that's. Uh, you know, his... I I read the final part of this the novel this time differently, and I found myself on several occasions taking Eddie's side and yeah. finding that Portia yeah. was actually mm. a nightmare, which yeah. I sort of think was more what Bowen originally intended and that she got misread she, of course Portia is not just a nightmare she's also the way we feel the whole mm. book for a lot of the time and she's immensely sympathetic but she's hysterical and it, ignorant too ignorant yeah. she doesn't know what she's doing fatal innocence um, yeah what she does to Major Brutt near the end yeah. of the yes. book yeah it's terrible absolutely what she does to Anna I think the book is very sympathetic yeah. to Anna. What she does to Thomas, it's very, you know, I think the yeah. book's sympathies are really evenly distributed yeah, and lots of it's with Portia, but by no means is it a story about innocence betrayed by a wicked world. It's partly about how innocence is like having a landmine in your house. Why is this novel called The Death yes. of the Heart? Why? I don't know. It's really odd, isn't it? Whose heart, yeah. what death? yes. And and is it a quote? It has a quotey sound, but I yeah. don't I don't recognise it. I think that she I, I read somewhere that she regretted it, that she felt that everybody was writing to her about the death of their heart. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's it's sort of H A R T, isn't it? I've yeah. never that's obvious maybe, yeah. but I've never thought that before. It's the death mm. of the, the the deer who's being pursued in the hunt, and you can kind of transfer that onto loss of innocence. Yeah. You know. Well, she's also her background is as is that of. She grew up um, in Ireland, of course, as uh, the resident of a big house, quote unquote, um, Bowen's Court. And we have a clip here. This is from a 1985 Channel 4 documentary. Three sisters, Anglo-Irish, of a similar generation, maybe slightly younger than Bowen, but only 10 years or so younger, who are reminiscing here about what life was like growing up in the big house after the events of the early 20th century in Ireland. And this, I think, will give you a sense of 
Bowen's split identity. That seems to me a really important part of her her voice, her artistic approach. Mummy's uh, mother was English. Mummy's father was Irish. Irish. His yeah. father was Irish, and his father before him was Irish. And then our father was English, so we feel that both. Our father was killed at the end of the First World War, the very end. Ardfrey House was still standing when the three sisters returned, but their inheritance didn't amount to much. It was beyond repair. No, we've never been able to live in the big house. We've lived up here <laughs> in this little place, which was the steward's house. The step-grandmother, she mm. left it empty. Mm. And so everybody, you know what happened to the house, is left empty. Well, they just came and just rampaged over everything and took everything back to go away on boats and the mm. chandeliers and the silver things and everything. And for instance, that old piano we've got, that was found years afterwards in a barber shop in Galway. And Mummy couldn't do anything about it. Oh, oh yes. well, oh, we yes, were quite you... used to not having any money, actually. Mm. <laughs> Thank oh, yes. But you had an awful time trying oh, to yeah. uh, have turkeys in the kitchen. Oh. Sorry to interrupt. May I borrow the cat? Cat basket. Cat basket. You're in Ireland, you know. That's my find of the year, that documentary. That is your find of the year. If you look on YouTube, Anglo-Irish Sisters Channel 4 documentary, you'll find it. It's absolutely incredible. But that, Tessa, that is the yes. the world in which Elizabeth Bone grew up. Yes, yes. And there's her first novel. No, it's not her first novel. Maybe her second, The Last September, which Last is September. a novel. Yes. Yeah. That's all set in one of those big houses. I, I, I am going to deliver a spoiler. On the last page, the big house is burnt to the ground. That's how it cl it, it ends with the gate clanging open yeah. onto the fire. But in the middle, it's it's got exactly that wit that those three sisters have there, that yes. dryness. And and some of their English visitors at some point sort of remark um well, your 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 tenants are that you know they seem to be revolting against you. And Lady Naylor thinks to herself, "Yeah, but your English tenants are too stupid to know they're being exploited." <laughs> you know the sort of yeah. lovely mockery, which is which clearly arose in some part out of the precariousness of that that Protestant gentry class in Ireland. That that feeds so directly into Bowen's perspectives. And then, of course, when she moved across, her father went mad and her mother and she moved, uh, you know, literally had to be put in an asylum. It's very tragic. And her mother and sh her, she moved to England and they lived in these funny places like Seal in the middle of this novel, English villas in the seaside, sort of trap mm. gentility and what she's brilliant mm. about when she mm. writes about that move herself is that to her that was exotic it wasn't that Ireland was exotic and England was ordinary and I think it gave her an eye that made 
everything exotic. Wherever you went, things were weird because yeah. they are weird unless you're used to them. And that <laughs> you can feel yeah. the sentences, you can feel the weirdery of what yeah, she yeah, yeah. sees. Sean O'Fallon says in that piece, um, he says, I once, when I was staying at Bones Court, I once intruded on her while she was working and I ex had expected that she would turn round in a rather raffish way, having easily, you know, dispatched another 500 words of Bon Mot. When she turned round, being interrupted, there were beads of perspiration on her forehead. You know, and for me, I think this is where the strength of the prose lies. There's no, not only the words not lazily chosen, that it's not even about the sentence here, is it? It's about, we were picking up on phrases the each phrase, each carefully weighed phrase. She's straining to express what she perceives, and that is a huge yeah. effort. And then the great writers who make the greatest effort translate it into limpid, effortless sentences. But but the strain to to stare to even in a comic scene, or especially in a comic scene, at those old ladies in the library and work mm. out why it is that they not only accept Daphne, they applaud her intolerance of literature. The strain of comprehension and perception is enormous, but then it results in that beautiful flow, that ease that makes us all fall about laughing. This is Bone talking about dialogue in novels, not just her own dialogue, but as she goes on, she develops a thought which seems to me really contemporary, and I'd be fascinated to hear what you make of this but look now is there not an emergence of dialogue of a different kind stylized formalized i call to your attention the use of dialogue in two of our immediately contemporary authors henry green and Ivy Compton Burnett. In these, we have a dialogue which is not representative of the persons, which does not aim in its own way to sound either realistic or spontaneous. All the characters in a Burnett novel speak, as you will know, more or less alike, young and old, powerful and humble. Dialogue is used as, in a parallel way, Henry Green does use it, apparently as an end in itself. And yet, nothing in the novel is an end in itself. The novel is the end and aim of the author. Are we to take it that this change in the manner and use of a dialogue denotes or symbolises some change in the form of the novel, and still more in the intentions of the novel in our day. Does it mark the ending of a study of individualized character, the individual for his own sake, as a theme? Are we going back to the symbolic, the masked speaker? Is this turning away from naturalism? a lapse or suspension of interest in single people and a greater sense on our part of the importance of crisis or the meaning of group emotion 
and group feeling? Do we think more of kinds of people? What a brilliant critic she is. God almighty, yeah. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. I listen to that and I think many listeners, I hope, will have felt the same thing. You start going, oh, she's speaking like that. And as it goes on, you're thinking, wait a minute, this is totally contemporary. Yeah. The articulation yeah. of what she's talking about, which we've talked about on this show that's before. absolutely brilliant. The individual versus types yeah, yeah, of yeah. people. That's yeah. where we are. That's Completely. exactly what's And happening. imagine that in the 1970s, she was not on the English literature curriculum. Just We should have a feminist moment of just saying that was outrageous. <laughs> but she was on the Booker Prize judging panel that gave John Berger's G the, the Booker Prize. Yeah. Did she? Yeah. Wow, yeah, that's fantastic. And Tessa, what do we make of her late novels? I really love the last one, Eva Trout. It's actually quite a favourite of mine. Uh, it's it's very odd. She, she does obviously. She's she becomes out of sync as any old writer does with her era. That's just what happens. Mm. And if you're clever like Penelope Fitzgerald, you decide to write about 1913 and. Um, 1780 because you, you sort of know that you won't know about your own time because you're elderly and that's, that, that happens at some point so there is some sense that the, the, the last two or three books are odd they, they don't quite have the complete kind of wedge into the centre of life that this one does for me um, I, I'm not mad about the little girls but it's, it's I have to say at the level of the sentence and the paragraph, it's superb. It's so worth reading. The stories, there's, there's one marvellous late story called Day in the Dark, which is perhaps my favourite of all of hers. That's really late. Seems as if you can go on doing short stories. There's a lovely collection called The Mulberry Tree, which came out maybe 15, 20 years ago of her non-fiction. I think edited by Hermione Lee. I have it here. It transcribes some of her BBC sort of we'd now call them creative mm. writing lectures and I mm, used to mm. use them with my students when I was teaching creative writing and the stuff on dialogue is superb but how nobody should their... ever talk mm. about the plot or about how they're feeling or what their situation is they should do you know they should talk the, they should say the strange things people actually say to each other right off the point there's a fantastic Notes on writing a novel. Yeah. They're and you can so just good. dip into it anywhere. There's yeah. something fantastic. Yeah. The novelist's perceptions of his characters take place in the course of the actual writing of the novel. Yeah. And to an extent, the novelist is in the same position as the reader, but his perceptions should be always just in advance. I mean, yeah. so obviously very true. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the ideal way of presenting character is to invite perception. Invite perception. That's what those sentences. Portia going out of the room with orphaned unostentation. Tation, yeah. That invites <laughs> perception. But you have to work, don't you? you perception works as we read those two words. <laughs> right. And sadly, that's where we must leave our discussion. Huge thanks to Tessa for suggesting such a rich and rewarding novel, to Nikki Birch for pulling all our threads into one, and to Unbound for all the jigsaw puzzles. You can download all 163 previous episodes of Backlisted, plus follow links, clips and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website, backlisted.fm. And we're always pleased if you contact us on Twitter or Facebook, and now in Sound and Pictures on Instagram too. You can also show your love directly by supporting our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted 
We aim to survive without paid-for advertising. Your generosity helps us do that. All patrons get to hear backlisted episodes early, and for roughly the price of a coffee and a plate of chocolate biscuits at the Corona Cafe, lot listeners get two extra lock listeds a month, our very own seaside villa, where we three roll back the carpet and dance to the gramophone at full volume, smoke Our players, own Waikiki. <laughs> our own Waikiki. Smoke players' cigarettes and rattle on about the books, films, shows and music we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight. Lock listeners also get to hear their names read out on the show as a mark of our thanks and appreciation. And this week's roll call is... Uh, Mackenzie Jean. Sorry, we got your name wrong the, wrong, the, the last time, Mackenzie. Uh, William Thice, Alice Tomlinson, Mark Kennedy... Michael Jopling, Beans, Beans, Steve Daly. <laughs> and we're also delighted to welcome Matthew Sims to our guild of master storytellers, the highest tier in the backlisted firmament. Thank you all. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> for your generosity. Uh, and to all our patrons, thanks uh, for enabling us to continue to do what we love and enjoy and, you know, make long rambling programmes about <laughs> Elizabeth Bowen. <laughs> Tessa, I've got a question for you. Should readers start with The Death of the Heart? I think it's a good place to start, unless you love short stories, in which case start perhaps with the short stories. She's one of those rare writers who does both sublimely well. Yeah, our friend Andrew Mayo put me on the right track by recommending uh, The Demon Lover, which is the short stories that come out at the end of the Second World War. Personally, I thought that, that's an extraordinary collection. Um, and you've edited a, a selection yourself, haven't you? I've edited a Selected in Vintage, which, of course, happens to be full of wonderful, my favourite <laughs> stories, as I chose really? them. So and really wickedly, really wickedly, I didn't put any ghost stories in except The Demon Lover. I thought people would object if I didn't put that in because mm. it's probably her most anthologised. I'm not a great fan of ghost stories, so they're missing from this, but I, I, she's oh. marvellous, and everyone in here is a gem. Well, well, we'll put a link to that on the on the on the website. We certainly for will, sure, for sure. And there'll be links to everything that we've heard today as well on the on the website too. Yeah. Well, thanks very much, everybody. It would be inappropriate not to leave you with our queen Elizabeth Bowen. <laughs> so keep on her platinum jubilee. So keep keep listening. Uh, the last word will go to her, and we'll see you next time. Yes. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. Thank you. with this suggestion. People are the novel's concern, and with people, the novel will remain involved. Though who they are and what parts they are to play may change with time, and the showing may change accordingly. If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Lock Listeds, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.